Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Here we go. Welcome to the Sour of the Program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a Monday afternoon. 403-974-TALK is our number. 974-8255. Plenty more to get to on the program this afternoon. Conversation later in the hour about uh, the status of the Governor General's position in Canada. It is, of course, vacant at the moment. What does that mean? We'll get into that coming up later in the hour. Off the top in this hour, though, I want to get back into the issue of rapid testing and why we haven't embraced rapid testing as much as we should and why it creates, I think, some real opportunities to, to allow some resumption of normalcy. I mean, you know, vaccines, maybe longer term offer that. I think there's probably a, a great combination to be had between the impact of vaccination and the impact of rapid testing. Now, part of the problem has been that maybe we, we've been reluctant as a country, or at least in terms of Health Canada, to approve more rapid testing, make these widely available. We did get the news over the weekend that that uh, Spartan Bioscience uh, rapid test, it's a PCR test, but can provide on-site results within an hour, has been approved. And there's some issues with this last year. You might recall those issues have been resolved. So I think that's an important step forward. Now, the issue of rapid testing is, is something that our next guest and his group have been pushing for some time. And uh, there's also a really interesting proposal to put this technology to use in the community of Banff. Uh, so joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, Sandy White, who's an entrepreneur, a former political advisor, co-founder of the group Rapid Test and Trace Canada. Uh, RapidTestandTrace.ca is the website. Sandy, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Uh, just your reaction to, to the news over the weekend regarding Spartans, uh, rapid uh, Spartan Bioscience and their rapid test, and just where we're at in terms of having this technology available. I think it's very encouraging. So one comment I will make is that Health Canada has actually done a decent job at approving a lot of these tests. So back in the fall, in November, we started buying tests from Abbott and from a bunch of other companies that were uh, approved by Health Canada. And these are out in the hands of the provinces already. All of those are antigen tests, which are different from the Spartan test. Uh, the antigen tests give you results in 15 minutes. They are very, very accurate, the ones that Canada has bought. And this is the whole notion of where the problem lies is the provinces up to a point are the ones who are the gatekeepers of how to roll the tests out. Health Canada buys them, gives them to the provinces, and because we have a decentralized healthcare system, each province approaches this very differently. So currently we are um, preparing to present a pilot project proposal to uh, the Alberta government, ideally towards the end of this week, to get testing uh, off the ground in BAMP, where we'd be uh, testing the entire community on an ongoing basis using these rapid antigen tests. And we do really believe, and a lot of the science globally is indicating that if done properly, this can really eradicate COVID almost completely in the span of a couple of weeks. Um, so the, the problem I think that Canada is having right now 
is they are spending a little bit too much time on trying to be perfect, making sure we have mm -hmm. the absolute best test in the absolute best setting and that it is studied ad nauseum rather than just realizing that look, the building is on fire and we shouldn't be spending too much time wondering what kind of hose we're using. We should just be hitting it with everything we've got. Yeah, I, 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 I like the analogy, and I, I tend to favor that approach. I get maybe from the province's perspective, there is some value in, in having this all under one umbrella, that we know how many tests are being done. We know how many are coming back positive. We know what the positive rate looks like. All, all of those are, are relevant data points, and if we really start to decentralize it, uh, maybe we start to, to lose track of that. Is, is that at all a valid concern, or how do you see that? I, I don't think it is, Rob. And the reason that I say decentralized is all the provinces do collect their own data. But I mean, insofar as each province approaches this very differently is where the issue lies. BC, for example, doesn't really want to use the rapid test. Alberta is now pushing ahead, which I'm very, very thankful for. Ontario is a little bit further along than Alberta is. But insofar as rolling this out at mass scale, that's precisely the government's job. And they have the ability to do it. I think there is just reluctance to say... It doesn't matter where you are or who you are, we should be using these tests, which we're starting to see in the UK. They're trying to ramp up their domestic production to 2 million tests a day and testing as many as 5 or 10 million people a day. Whereas in Canada, we're barely testing 70,000 people a day using these really slow PCR tests, which are terrific tests for diagnosis to tell you if you have COVID. But where the difference between the PCR tests and the rapid antigen tests come in is the antigen tests are, in a sense, contagiousness tests. They detect a high viral load, so they only really tell you if you're transmitting. And it's the frequency of the testing that is so critical. So if you got infected on a Monday and you got tested on a Tuesday, but you aren't transmitting until Wednesday, the antigen test will miss that. But if you get tested again on the Thursday, it'll pick it up. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting, too. I mean, we, we look at, um, you know, the, the uh, NHL, for example, last year, and, and they pulled off to two very successful playoff hubs in, in Edmonton and Toronto. I mean, the movie industry is another example where, you know, they're getting back, films are in production. It, 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 you know, none of this would be possible without testing. So there's some really good examples out there of, of where industries or specific businesses have, have employed testing, widespread uh, rapid testing uh, as a way to to safely resume more or less normal activities. I, I mean, are, are those good examples? What else can we look to? I think they're wonderful examples where they are unfortunate is they are reserved for those people in those elite positions, whether you work yeah. for the right company, whether you're an NHL or an NBA player. Uh, and I think that's where the uh, the exacerbation of all of these inequalities up to a point of who can get what who gets better care, that is really being put to the forefront right now with the just simple ability to get testing in Canada, and it is very complicated. So it should be something where the floodgates are open, we buy as many tests as we need, and all we heard from the beginning of the pandemic was test, test, test. And then we have seemingly just decided to ignore that almost entirely. And, and Rob, one of the real issues in all of this, and it's a thing that we take a huge issue with, is there is still a lot of confusion and I would actually say misinformation about the accuracy of these tests. Everyone says the reason we don't want to use them is that they are not as good as the PCR tests. But the differences we're talking about are within a few percentage points. You know, the, the rapid tests that Canada has right now are above 90% for the most part in their accuracy and the PCR tests are above 94, 95%. Right. So it's really splitting hairs over this thing. And again, they cost 
about a tenth of what the PCR tests cost, and you're getting your results in one one-thousandth of the time. So I think that that example you're talking about is valid. This can be used on a wide scale in Barcelona, for example, and let's, you know, put our, our rose-colored glasses on and dream that this is a possibility. Barcelona had a rock show in November where they had 10,000 people apply to go to the concert. They only let 500 people in. They tested every single person to go to this five-hour-long concert, and not a single COVID case came out of it. So yeah. all of this is achievable. We just need to open the floodgates and let it happen. Well, that's the thing, and I, and, and I, and I get, uh, you know, the, the value of the PCR test. So we, we can do, we're doing maybe at best, usually not quite, but say 20,000 PCR tests in a day. But if we could do 200,000 tests with, with a test that isn't quite as good, but is still still pretty good, that to me seems much more valuable, right? So it's, it's sort of about scale versus, you know, the, the sensitivity or the perfection of the test, maybe. Well, exactly. In this case, to be transparent, I think the perfection really is the enemy of the good in this case, because if Rob got COVID a month ago and we test him with a PCR test, the PCR still picks up those trace elements of COVID that are in your system, whereas you stopped being contagious three weeks ago. So it's a great diagnostic tool again, and the PCR is critical to know who has had COVID or who might still have traces of it in their system. But we don't care if you're not transmitting anymore. We care if you are infectious and contagious. And that's where the PCR test doesn't do a good job. And I think the thinking needs to do a complete 180 where we say, look, PCR is great for certain circumstances, such as confirming a rapid antigen test that that comes out positive. But the rapid antigen testing, because it's so cheap, because it's so fast, and because it is really that great tool for contagiousness, it is what we should be doing here. And I'll make a final point on that. Canada is really lagging in this notion of the do-it-yourself aspect. So about a month and a half ago, the U.S. approved rapid at-home testing, so much like a home pregnancy test, that are saliva-based. You spit in the thing, it's five bucks, and 15 minutes later, you get to see your result. And it's, you know, do I go to work? Do I go visit my parents? Do I go to the movie theater? And I think as we talk about this notion of a resumption of normal we're already seeing the problems with the vaccine rollout. Now we're seeing the problems with the new strains of COVID coming up. And at least the testing is able to catch those kinds of things while we do all the background work of tweaking and retailing vaccines if we need to, and at least rolling them out on a, on a larger scale. So testing is the solution right now to get life back to normal while we wait for a vaccine. Yeah, let's uh, find out a bit more about the, um, the this idea in Banff, and I, I know there's some some business leaders in Banff that are involved in this. Uh, the idea of of deploying these tests on a widespread basis in Banff. So, so where are things at on that front? So the community has gotten behind this, um, both at the municipal level and among the business community, which we're we're thrilled about. Uh, Banff, of course, is not a regular community. When things are slow in Banff, such as during lockdown periods, it's not 10, 20% unemployment, it's 90% unemployment. This is really crippling these areas. So where we are right now is we just finished our first draft of a pilot project proposal. We are hoping to submit that to the province as soon as this week. And I think the, um, the thinking in terms of whether or not the province wants to do more rapid testing is evolving daily. As we're seeing in Alberta, they're starting to do more of these pilot projects, which I think is very encouraging. Uh, We hope that we'll get the green light for it. All we're really asking the province for is provide us with the tests that they already have. We're in conversation with Health Canada, who I believe is going to be supportive of this as well. Uh, And then the business community in the town are doing all of the heavy lifting. They're doing the legwork. We're paying for the PPE. We're paying for the contact tracing. 
which is absolutely critical in finding out actually where these cases have come from and where that person has been. I think a few months ago, Alberta had something like 85% of their cases had an unknown origin. So ideally, or obviously, I think if all things go well, by maybe as soon as March 1st, we're rolling out testing uh, at a mass scale in Banff, and then shortly thereafter, I think looking at anyone who's coming to visit that community as well. So initially, we'll be focusing on residents uh, and people working at the front line, but then I think hopefully we can get to the point where Rob goes to Banff for the weekend, we can test you when you get there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I think it would be great if we could get to that point. And in terms then of at least having the available resources, like, you know, as you say, these tests are approved. These these tests are out there, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's where there is a bit of disappointment, I think, in, in the community that is looking at why we haven't been doing this fast enough. These tests have been in Canada for months now, and we're rolling them out at a very, very small scale. It's a trickle. But what we really do need is everyone getting behind this. And the concerns are we don't have the right system in place. We don't have the bodies. Everyone's overworked. And up to a point, that's accurate. The Canadian healthcare system, very simply, is not set up to handle COVID. It's it's an analog system in a digital world. We're still faxing things to each other, which is ludicrous. But where I think the, the failure up to a point in Canada has been is not engaging volunteers, not engaging the private sector, really, who can help in this effort immensely. So what we're going to be hoping is it will happen in Banff is get a number of volunteer people that are helping doing the swabs, taking people's information. It doesn't need to be nurses sitting on phones calling people for a follow-up. Nurses need to be doing far more important work, same with doctors. But the point is, if we can do this at scale, it completely takes the pressure off of the system. We're not searching for beds, we're not putting people in hallways, and we're not having to turn people away and decide you know, quite critically, who lives and dies. I think this really is the way to slow this disease down. It's being proven in the UK. Liverpool did a wonderful pilot with this not too long ago where they tested the entire town. The UK is really trying to ramp up their testing. Slovakia is doing it as well. And I think the Biden administration now has put something like 10 to 15 billion towards rapid testing uh, to both ramp up uh, domestic manufacturing and to get tests out to people because they see that this is the way to stop COVID until the vaccine is ready. Right. Well, and, and even once we have vaccines, I, I think there's, you know, and, and maybe this makes for a great one-two punch, maybe to have widely available vaccines, but but still have this testing uh, available. How, how do you see testing fitting in then in, in the months ahead? Well, it's um, depressing up to a point, but what I do here, and I, I'm not a public health professional, I'm not a scientist, I'm an entrepreneur, I've just managed to get this wonderful group of, of very intelligent, very capable people together. But what they tell me often is that it looks like we're still living like this for another 12 to 18 months, vaccine or not, where the distancing, the masks, the testing, that is going to have to be there. So I think it's time for Canada to say, all right, let's do it. We were slow to get going. The proof is there. We need to buy the tests and we need to deploy them because we are going to be living like this for the foreseeable future. Much more the website, rapidtestandtrace.ca. Uh, Sandy, we'll uh, keep a, a close eye on how this uh, unfolds in Banff and really looking uh, forward to seeing the results from that. And uh, perhaps we'll, we'll touch base a little bit down the road here. Wonderful. Thanks a lot, Rob. Appreciate some time for us here today. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Sandy White. He's uh, one of the co-founders uh, of the group Rapid Test and Trace Canada, rapidtestandtrace.ca. So you can read more at their website about you know, kind of where we're at in terms of what's available, why it's so important to, to take this approach, and in particular, what they're looking at doing in Banff. So to start, the idea would be just to, to test as many people in Banff as possible.
but then beyond that, to almost use that as a way to allow uh, visitors to, to safely come in. You go to Banff for a weekend, uh, no problem. You just uh, have a, a rapid test uh, when you get there and you can safely enjoy the weekend. I, I think it's a great idea. So again, rapidtestandtrace.ca is their website. All right, well, as Canada braces uh, potentially for a, a surge in cases related to these more contagious variants, and what are we doing to try to head that off? Uh, there's some uh, encouraging news today on, on the vaccine front. Moderna owes some data uh, in terms of uh, its vaccine and efficacy against some of these variants, although the one caveat being that it is reduced efficacy when it comes to this South African variant. So it's a little bit of a, a warning here that, you know, we could see that that potential emerge where, you know, we need to retool some of these vaccines. So it is something to watch for. In the meantime, it does speak to the urgency uh, to get vaccines out. And, and clearly there's some frustration in Canada at the moment with the pace of vaccinations. Uh, there's some potentially encouraging news on the treatment front, some new uh, Canadian research into the drug culture scene. And so maybe that can be another tool in the arsenal. Uh, joining us to talk more uh, about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Uh, Rewant Dianandan, who is an epidemiologist, associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Uh, professor Dianandan, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, so first of all, your, your thoughts on uh, what we see here from Moderna today, what, what I, I think on the surface is, is pretty encouraging news about vaccines and variants. What, what do you make of it? It's great news, and it's not surprising. Remember, these mutations are all happening on the spike protein, which is how the vaccine identifies the virus. But the spike protein is very, very large relatively, and the mutations are quite small. So it makes sense that the immune system can still identify the virus. Now, I have to correct you on one thing. The, the South African variant isn't diminished in terms of efficacy, because that's a specific thing in terms of um, the comparative infection rate in the vaccinated population versus the non-vaccinated the population. What Moderna has observed is that the nature and the amount of neutralizing antibodies is different for the new okay. variant. That might mean a diminished effectiveness, or it might not. We just don't know. It just means that just, just less of it. Um, so it might be a, a yes-no thing. So uh, the way I look at it, it's good across the board. It's, it's great. Um, mind you, there may be new variants coming along that are vaccine-resistant, and we have to be on guard for those. And further to the point you just made, because obviously immunity is uh, about much more than just antibodies. I, I t we, we tend to talk a lot more about antibodies, maybe, but uh, there, there is a, a much more complex immune response. And it, I guess it goes well beyond that, doesn't it? It really does. There's also T-cells. So T-cells are the, um, the system by which the body remembers old infection. And the uh, randomized controlled trials that gave us the data for the two mRNA vaccines suggested it's the second dose that gives us that longevity. And it may be lasting one, two, three years even. So I think there's good news all the way around when it comes to these vaccines. There is. And, and I, I think, you know, the concern about uh, transmissibility is, is leading to some additional urgency to try to get those vaccines out as quickly as we can. And we see what they're going through at the moment in the United Kingdom. Uh, from, from an epidemiological point of view, I mean, what, what are you seeing in the data about, you know, the, the threat that these pose, what, what we could see here if indeed these, these variants or at least, you know, one of them even uh, starts to take root? Yeah, it's pretty serious. 
And here's why. The UK variant, if you want to call it that, is we think 56% more transmissible. Even if it's not more lethal, and we can talk about that in a second, it means that it's more likely to infect more people. The reproduction number is higher, which means it can get ahead of our uh, efforts to vaccinate. And it absolutely will get ahead of our efforts to vaccinate because we can't vaccinate that quickly. It means that we're going to have a harder time protecting our most vulnerable, like the long-term care centers and so forth. It makes it more dire, more important to diminish transmission. So we have to maintain our distance and maybe even have lockdowns longer and definitely vaccinate our long-term care residents. There's some suggestion that the UK variant might be more lethal. Boris Johnson suggested 30% more lethal, which doesn't sound like a lot. That adds up. So the combination of more transmissible plus more lethal might mean a greater burden on our healthcare system and a greater uh, death toll as well. It's interesting because, I mean, we, we can study the, the virus itself, we can map out its genome, we can understand, you know, where, where these, these changes have, have occurred. But in terms of understanding why it's, it's more transmissible or even how it could be more deadly, uh, is, is, are we still trying to understand that? For, in large part, yes. Now, we think, by we, I mean those who study it, not me, we think that the transmissibility in this case has to do with the nature of the binding. So the new variants apparently get to cling to our cells a bit easier and uh, also evade the immune system a tad more easily, therefore can increase viral load faster, therefore have a larger uh, pathogenic response. So that's how it works uh, at the individual level. But at the population level, that's really what we care about here in epidemiology. It just seems that more people are getting infected and more people are going to be hospitalized and more people will die unless we can vaccinate faster. Well, and uh, we're, we're already seeing some evidence that it's here. I mean, we've identified some cases. It appears that um, there, there was an outbreak in a nursing home in Ontario that, uh, you know, that happened quite quickly and has had some, some pretty dire outcomes. That That's attributable to this, uh, this UK variant. So, I mean, we're already seeing some evidence that, A, it's here and, and B, what it's capable of. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, the long-term care center in Barrie was an eye-opener. It tore through that long-term care center with a vengeance. It shows us that we can't keep our institutions as safe as we thought we could, even deep in the second wave when we think we know what infection control looks like. And again, it increases the stakes for making sure that these populations are well vaccinated. That's why we stepped up the pace of that process. Now, uh, it also means we need to slow down the ability of the new variants to move across the country. So maybe enacting domestic travel restrictions is in order so that these areas with high prevalence of this new variant are separated from areas of low prevalence by, by keeping people from those areas from traveling. So some policy levers are still open to us, but the key here is to slow transmission and get more vaccines. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, we've seen such amazing progress when it comes to developing vaccines. Uh, on the treatment side, though, it, it hasn't been as as dramatic. Uh, I know there's been a lot of hope invested in, in maybe certain drugs that, that could be retooled. And I think we've had some disappointments on that front. Given all of that, what, what do you make of this research today, uh, in fact, uh, out of Quebec, uh, that suggests that colchicine, which is a drug that's used to treat gout, uh, that it, it could be beneficial when it comes to uh, COVID-19 or at least more severe outcomes, hospitalizations, et cetera. Um, you know, there's some limited data available. What is it telling you? It's tantalizing. 
And it makes sense biologically because cochicine is an anti-inflammatory and seems to reduce this thing that we call the cytokine storm. Most people who die of COVID die of the cytokine storm. That's when your body just goes crazy with an immune response. But epidemiologically, we have to be a little bit cautious here. One of the lessons from this pandemic is to really beware science by press release. So many uh, tantalizing and promising announcements didn't pan out in the end. Things like remdesivir and hydrochloroquine, all those drugs that people still think about, but really the data yes. does not support. In this one, we haven't seen the data. We just had the press release. And even what's been released is a little, not suspicious, but it gives me some pause before I celebrate. For example, the words approaching statistical significance are in the press release. And that's not really a thing, in my opinion. You know, either it's significant right. or it isn't. Right. So, I mean, there is such a thing as clinical significance. So I, w- I will delay my celebration until the actual data is published and scientists get a chance to peer review it. That's coming very, very soon, possibly in the next week or two. But I mean, how typical is it? I mean, you know, obviously drugs that exist are approved for a, a specific reason. Now, th- there can be what they would call off-label uses for certain drugs, but, you know, to find a home run like this, to, to find a drug that was originally designed for something else that can be hugely beneficial in in treating a completely different disease, or in this case, a new disease. I mean, is is that typically pretty rare? I don't know if it's rare. It's not uncommon. I mean, trazodone comes to mind. Trazodone was originally an antidepressant. Then it was found to be a sleep aid. Then it was found to be an erectile dysfunction drug because Mm -hmm. depressed people were sleeping better and having better erections. And so uh, in the process of prescribing a medication that was developed for one thing, you find that so-called adverse reactions are actually positive reactions that can be reconsidered through a different lens. So uh, this is part and parcel of the drug discovery process. So I'm not overly um, surprised, especially as new diseases manifest, it's important to look through the catalog of our tools throughout history to see if this new disease resembles other things we have created in the past. In fact, that's one of the, the common clinical approaches. See what tools we have in the toolkit that have worked on similar things. And in this case, we're looking for anti-inflammatories and posticine came up. So let's, let's hope it's the one. When it comes to developing new treatments or, or antivirals, is, is there some competition here with vaccines that maybe vaccines are the better bet for, for companies that develop drugs? Or is, is it just that challenging to develop uh, good treatments and, and good antiviral medications? That's a really interesting question. That's an economic question more than anything else. I suppose. And if you weren't yeah. in, in, a, in a pandemic scenario, I would say that the antivirals are, in fact, the better economic investment than the vaccine because... People who are sick are actually at a, are more likely to be a better market than people who aren't sick. However, because of the pandemic, a lot of the financial risk has been underwritten by government when it comes to vaccine development. That's why we got so many vaccines, because mm-hmm. there was no cost in creating all these parallel, very expensive randomized controlled trials. So the drug companies undertook no risk at all. So in these kinds of scenarios, the vaccines obviously are the better way to go. But economically, in a non-crisis year, the opposite is true. What you just observed is, in a nutshell, the one of the problems with addressing global health issues in this current sort of economic framework, we need to incentivize these kinds of developments in new and creative ways. Yeah, I mean, I often think of, um, you know, the challenges in, in combating AIDS, right? And, and you know, the, the AIDS vaccine has seemed so elusive, but yet, you know, science has developed some really effective uh, antivirals. So, I mean, you know, AIDS is, is no longer the death sentence that it once was, even if we never really could come up with a vaccine for it. Yes, good point. 
Um, I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, uh, that maybe it is technologically a bit easier to develop an antiviral than it is a vaccine for a given kind of disease, especially a disease like AIDS, which actually diminishes your immune system. So mm-hmm. trying to prepare your immune system to combat that is a, a special kind of complication. But uh, it's an interesting economic question that I have to give more thought to. But we have a good history as a species when it comes to vaccination and developing vaccination. The previous record, as you probably know, for the uh, fastest development of a vaccine was the 1960s. A mumps vaccine took four years, and that was lightning fast. But this was made possible because of the money. A number of reasons. The money was a big part of it. And it really tells us going forward that diseases like AIDS and cancer and Ebola, we can develop all kinds of vaccines. All it takes is political will and money. And now that we know that, I think the public will demand faster action on vaccines for a number of things. You know, and, and the other thing, too, and I've seen this point made a few times today by, by some of the experts I follow on social media, Merck today, which is a pretty big uh, pharmaceutical company, uh, announced that they were dropping their vaccine program because they haven't been able to, to um, you know, design something that gets an adequate immune response. So the fact that we've got, you know, Pfizer and Moderna with such a incredible, um, you know, efficacy and safety data and, and others coming, you know, we're, we're kind of lucky in a way because what's happened with Merck and some other big companies, too, it, it illustrates, you know, that there's some real challenges here. Absolutely. And I got to give credit to Bill Gates. It was his idea originally to incentivize parallel creation of a variety of formulations. Now, why bank on one or two? Let's fund a hundred different vaccine competitors. And so at the end of the day, you get a half a dozen that complete their phase three clinical trials with good data. Unfortunately, the Merck ones didn't pan out. And uh, we should celebrate the fact that they were transparent enough to admit that, um, but also, you know, weep a bit that we're losing two additional weapons in this battle. What I'm hoping happens is maybe we can explore whether Merck can partner in the manufacturing process of one of the other competitors. Let's retask some of our manufacturing capacity to speed up delivery of this most precious commodity now. I don't know if that's possible technologically, um, but it's something I think that should be explored politically. That's a great point. So we'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Dianandin, always appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you. Much appreciate it. Take care. Uh, Dr. Raywat Dianandin, uh, epidemiologist, associate professor, University of Ottawa. So some thoughts from him on uh, some of the news of the day here on the vaccine and treatment front and, uh, you know, why there's still this, this uh, real deep concern about what these uh, variants might represent in terms of challenges for us. All right, welcome back. So, yeah, the Governor General's position obviously has uh, come back into the spotlight given the events of last week where uh, Julie Payette resigned following what were described as scathing findings of this independent review into workplace abuse allegations. And it was really the breaking point, obviously, and, and it was the kind of thing I don't think there was any avoiding this sort of outcome. There were a lot of other controversies that I guess were easy enough to ride out, but it all amounts to, you know, somebody who shouldn't have been in that position, somebody who probably didn't want to be in that position. You know, just the story about how Julie Payette didn't want to live at Rideau Hall, but yet demanded all of these renovations be done at Rideau Hall uh, because she didn't want to have to interact with people who worked there. You know, she often shunned a lot of uh, duties that that the uh, governor general would normally do. Again, look, I mean, that's fine. If you just want to live a quiet, private life, you've been an astronaut, you've done all those things, then fine, do that. Just, you know, have your, your 
quiet little home in the country and nobody's bothering you. Don't accept this job. And how was it, by the way, that uh, the prime minister concluded that this was the best possible candidate for this job? There's, there's a panel that looks into all of this. It's pretty clear that the prime minister's office ignored any of that advice, ignored a lot of red flags. So they got to own some of this mess, too. Part of the problem going forward here is what happens now with the, the vacant position uh, with a minority parliament. And what about some of the perks now that a former governor general would be entitled to, including and especially the $150,000 or so uh, that they would get as an annual retirement annuity? Um, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole commenting on this today, uh, saying that under the circumstances, that should not be made available. Here's clip number five. She resigned her role. She should not be able to access the normal courtesies provided to governors generals. Did Prime Minister Trudeau commit to her that she could. Uh, he is trying to save face for a failure on his part. Uh, the office, sadly, has been sullied. We are in a minority parliament. Um, we had a very nonpartisan committee that looked at vice-regal appointments. He should go back to that. But at the bare minimum, he should consult other parties, and he should tell Canadians whether he guaranteed, as part of the deal for her to resign, whether he guaranteed her these these funds and benefits. Well, yeah, it's interesting. We don't know what kind of conversations took place here. I mean, obviously, the prime minister cannot fire the governor general. That's a power that actually only the queen possesses. But were there any sort of conversations then that led to that uh, resignation? Now, um, as mentioned, there is the question here about what this means in terms of the role of the governor general. Obviously, we've got a minority government that could be somewhat precarious, I suppose, depending on how you read the political tea leaves. So joining us to talk a bit about the implications uh, of the uh, situation we find ourselves in and uh, what it means going forward, especially under a minority parliament, as mentioned. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Daniel Bilan, uh, James McGill Professor, Department of Political Science and Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Professor Bela, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for the invitation. It's interesting. I think Canadians, maybe we, we don't fully understand or appreciate what the role of the Governor General is. I mean, the Governor General is not the head of state, is not the head of government, but is a pretty important, maybe a, a link between the two. What, what do we need to understand about, you know, the importance of this role and, and how it functions on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so the role itself is... There's a ceremonial aspect to it, and that's what most people know about it. But there is also, of course, a constitutional uh, uh, aspect to the role because it's um, the governor general is the uh, the representative of uh, the sovereign, so the, the the head of state, which is the Queen of Canada, Elizabeth II. So the representative of uh, the the Queen in Canada, and so if you enact the bills in Parliament, they cannot become law. Uh, without royal assent. So the governor-general has to uh, put her or his stamp on, on these bills so that they become laws. And also, of course, uh, the, the governor-general plays a role when it's time to uh, have a dissolution um, 
dissolution of the House or, or to call elections. Of course, most of the time, the Governor General acts on the advice of the Prime Minister, but there are some conditions under which uh, the Governor General can say no to a Prime Minister. Um, and, and we, if you remember, uh, during the Harper years in 2008-2009, when Michael Jean was the, the Governor General, there was a discussion about the potential uh, Liberal and NDP coalition prompted by the Bloc, and Stephen mm-hmm. Harper, not that far after a federal election, decided to uh, um, uh, have prorogation, that is, to end the uh, parliamentary session. And Michael Jean, the time, uh, took quite a bit of time to think uh, about what to do. And, and she could have said no to Harper. In the end, she said yes, but it was still a controversial decision. It was her decision. Right. Um, so th- those are all part of the governor general's important roles here. So... We, we have this, this situation at the moment where we don't technically have a governor general. I understand the uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court uh, is, is going to play some of those, those duties. So how, how, does, how does he fit in at, at Yeah, uh, so he's an administrator and he has the powers of the governor general without being an interim governor general having the title. But as you said, uh, Richard Wagner is also uh, the, the chief justice of Canada. So... It's not something good for our system to have uh, the chief justice to also wear that other hat, uh, at least as an administrator, for a long period of time. So there is, of course, it's not the first time in our history that uh, a situation like that happened. It's the first time that we have a governor general uh, uh, resigning uh, from office. But we had, for example, Vanier, governor general who died in office. And, and <laughs> of course, it's the chief justice at the time who stepped in. Um, but you don't want that to happen uh, to, to, we don't want uh, to have this kind of interim situation for too long, especially in the context of minority government, because during that period, the role of the governor general uh, um, is actually uh, more on the line in terms of it, uh, uh, their constitutional duties because of the risk of, at any time, of course, the government being defeated on a confidence vote. Um, and, and so you could have that in, in the spring after the uh, the, the next federal budget, for example. So I think it, there is quite a bit of a, uh, it's not a constitutional crisis, but I don't think we should wait too long to appoint the, the next governor general. At the same time, we want to vet that person properly because Julie Payette wasn't, and we know what, uh, what it led to. Well, and that's the dilemma for the government, I guess, the, the importance of, of taking the time to do it right, but also the urgency of, of trying to do this as quickly as possible. So they need to consult with the opposition, and they, now they said they would do so. I think it's smart to do this, especially in the current political context. And don't forget, it's not just minority government. We are facing a national economic and public health crisis with COVID-19. So this is really, we live in unusual times. And on the top of it, you have the governor general resigning for the first time in our history. So I think there is quite a bit of emergency, but you have to do it right. And uh, last time they, they failed, and they have, I think, to take a page of, you know, of, uh, Stephen Harper's book, because what Harper did when he was prime minister, he established his advisory committee on vice regal appointments, which was tasked in, in, in part to help uh, appoint uh, governor generals. And, um, and he used it to actually nominate, uh, the, to select David Johnston, and who became really the predecessor of uh, Julie Payette, who became one of our... I think, best uh, governor generals in a long time. So uh, I think there is need to have clarity in the process. And the, sh- the decision should not be, you know, the prime ministers. It-, it should be broad consultations. Last time, I think it was really his idea to appoint Julie Payette. There were some consultations, some background checks, but obviously it was not enough to detect the fact that this 
um, former astronaut had uh, been really facing a lot of uh, uh, a lot of complaints about her, her interpersonal relations and the way she treated her employees at her two previous jobs at the Montreal Science Center and the Canadian Olympic Committee. So it didn't take long for journalists when they started to ask questions to find that out. So why uh, is the federal government not able to get that basic information? It's just when you do a job search, you, you check your references, right? I'm not sure if they did it that time around, but uh, yeah. uh, they didn't probably dig very, very deep. Do you think there's been any damage done here to the institution itself? Yes, I, I do think so. Uh, you know, uh, this is not just because I hear a lot of people saying on social media, on radio, television, you know, we should abolish that position. Um, I think that it's a fair discussion to have, but people have to understand that this is a, if you want to abolish that position, you need consent of all the provinces, plus the House and the Senate. So it's like amending the Constitution, but that's the most stringent amending formula that applies. So I don't think it will happen tomorrow morning. And if you want to open the Constitution, there will be other grievances. Uh, Jason Kenney wants, you know, equalization to be removed from it. Uh, uh, Quebec wants things, indigenous peoples, and so forth. So, uh, you know, it's like opening the Constitution in this country is opening a Pandora box, right? So if people want to get rid of the Governor General, to me, it should be part of a broader discussion about whether Canada should stop being a constitutional monarchy to become a republic. Because if we are a constitutional monarchy, we need the equivalent of Governor General. It might not be called Governor General, um, but there should be some mediation between the monarch, the head of state, so the queen, uh, right now, and, and, uh, and, and Canada. Um, and right now, it's the Governor General. But if we want to get rid of the Governor General, then we should think about getting rid of the monarchy, constitutional monarchy altogether. But that's even more contentious, because the question is, what will replace our political system if we shift towards the republic, which will be a huge transformation of our institutions. And I'm not sure we are ready for that debate in Canada, but some people are already talking about it. And they have been for a while. Yeah. Well, some important points. We'll leave it there. Uh, Professor Balan, thank you so much for your time here and appreciate the insight on in all of this. Thank you. Have a wonderful afternoon. All right, you as well. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Daniel Ballon. He's a uh, professor at McGill University, director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada uh, on this situation we find ourselves in. And yeah, it would certainly be awkward, I think, to have the uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court to be the one to provide royal assent to a piece of legislation that perhaps could one day you know, be challenged in the courts and then come back before the Supreme Court. So it's, it's not an ideal situation at the moment. And uh, yeah, it is a byproduct of what was clearly a bad choice by the government. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.